The following Dharma talk was given by Ron Hogan Green. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at cmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. And uh, I want to make a particular point of inviting us, all of us, those who are at home on Zoom, those who attended the retreat yesterday, but in which this talk is a continuation on the precepts, the moral, the ethical teachings of Zen Buddhism, and those at the Fire Lotus Temple that I have a long and uh, loving relationship with, the building, the Sangha, the people who practice there. And I want to invite all of us, including obviously those in this room, to enter the room. And I'm not talking about the physical, or just the physical space of this room, but the space, to enter the space for this talk. The Sisters of Mercy by Leonard Cohn. Oh, the Sisters of Mercy, they are not departed or gone. They were waiting for me when I thought that I just can't go on. And they brought me their comfort, and later they brought me this song. Oh, I hope you run into them, you who've been traveling so long. Yes, you who must leave everything that you cannot control. It begins with your family, but soon comes round to your soul. Well, I've been where you're hanging. I think I can see how you're pinned. When you're not feeling holy, your loneliness says that you've sinned. While they lay down beside me, I made my confession to them. They touched both my eyes, and I touched the dew on their hem. If your life is a leaf that the seasons tear off and condemn, they will bind you with love that is graceful and green as a stem. When I left, they were sleeping. I hope you run into them soon. Don't turn on the lights. You can read their address by the moon. And you won't make me jealous if I hear that they've sweetened your night. We weren't lovers like that. And besides, it would still be all right. So I have an interesting and complicated relationship with Leonard Cohn. Uh, probably most of you have heard of him, a Canadian poet. He's really a poet. His songs are poems. But you can't make any money being a poet. 
in general. So like other, like Bob Dylan, for example, he turned to songwriting. He was a complex person. He recently died a few years ago. And I first encountered him when I met this young lady from Canada. And uh, we had a close relationship, and she handed me his first album. And she said, you need to listen to this. So I did. And his songs had the same effect as when I was introduced to Zen practice on me. Something was going on in her songs that I did not understand. I could hear the words, but I couldn't place them in my reference system. And they beckoned to me, they called to me. I played that album over and over and over again, and subsequent ones. There was an aspect of it, of his offering, which was self-referential very consistently, and kind of that aspect turned me off. But I could see past that. And so this is one of the songs on that first album, probably written in the 60s. And in his long life, he became a Zen Buddhist monk for a time and then left that as well. And there are many complicated stories about his life and his relationships. And among the things he noted was that he could only write what, write quality when he was suffering. That's interesting. Um, and I tried not to judge him for that because the major way he suffered was in relationship. Uh, which, from my slight knowledge of those relationships, he did not necessarily hold the other person well, which is a, a thing for me. But I could appreciate his teachings. In this song... He writes of his meeting, which is a true meeting that actually happened, with two sisters in New York City, Manhattan, in the middle of a fierce snowstorm at a time in his life in which he was in a very, very difficult place, really difficult. And he invited the two sisters who were also not in a difficult place, but didn't have a place to stay, to stay with him. And they did. And that encounter, this song came out of, he actually wrote it when he woke up in the morning and wrote this song and left it and left. He said, it's the only song you ever wrote. We just wrote it. And that was it. And the song was written at a time he was, I don't know what his interest was in Zen Buddhism at the time, but it predated that. So I'm using this song, not necessarily in the way he intended it exactly as he wrote it, but 
to deepen our understanding of compassion, of mercy, as an extension of the retreat yesterday, and for all of us, obviously. There are two essential points that are traditionally and usually held as the basis of this practice of awakening. Prajna and compassion. And one way to understand them is that they're like the two wings on a bird. The bird can't fly without both wings. And I have in my own experience as a practitioner and seen what I label as similar experiences in others, where if it gets too one-sided, if the emphasis, as sometimes it is, is just on insight, on prajna, on the non-dual dharma, you can produce a practitioner who has some insight into that, and yet does not manifest that insight in a what I would term a compassionate way. It's actually one of the reasons I stopped reading about Zen online, because I encountered that in some circumstances. And I'm so sensitive to that because I've encountered that in myself. The other perspective is that of compassion. And of course, if you have what you understand as compassion, but not that much insight, then there's a tendency to be very sweet and kind. And sweetness and kindness is almost always appropriate, but not always. Sometimes compassion needs other flavors, other perspectives to truly help somebody. And I've seen that in Zen and in Buddhism. And I've also seen teachers change over time as they addressed where their sangha was and widened their teaching appropriate to the circumstances, which in other sanghas I can't fully know, but I can observe it. So, prajna. It's a, how do you define it? You know, I, for a long time, understood it as just non-duality. But there's also an intelligence and a broader teaching than that, a broader experience than that, Prajna, which includes a deep, deep understanding of suffering and the Four Noble Truths. I find in my talks, I tend to emphasize that, and that can be depressing to people. But to me, that makes sense, because until we understand the problem, it can be difficult. The subtlety of the problem, the all-pervasiveness of the problem of suffering, to me, it's difficult to address it in a profound way, which is my purpose.
Not original with me, certainly. But also, equally, to study the other three noble truths as the basis of our practice. What the cause of that suffering is. Which leads to the second aspect of prajna. No self. Of course, suffering presents out of a self, a separate self from life, from what is around you. So the wisdom of Prajna is to see into the selflessness, not only of you and me, but all things, every single thing, insentient and sentient, is not self-centered, fundamentally, at the bottom. And also to appreciate the complete transiency of reality. You know, we talk about moments, but actually there are no moments. You know, try and capture the flowing river in a moment. When you capture a moment, it's already dead. Although to express that has its own poignancy. The other side of that, and implicit of what I'm saying, because I in no way want to disregard the non-duality of this, to see these things, these qualities, within an understanding that in this very room, space, it's whole, it's complete. In a way, although this language is slightly misleading, there's only a single thing of this space. Manifesting, of course, in each thing in the space. Though we know there are no things. So to realize that as your own experience is at the heart of this practice. As is compassion. The word usually translated as compassion is karuna. And I had a close friend who, I don't know if this is a blessing, named their child Karuna. You know, I wanted to ask her, how did that work out for you? But I never did. And that means active, responsive sympathy, a willingness to bear the pain of others pain of yourself, arising from a fundamental appreciation of more than our interconnectedness, more than our interbeing. We are one person, fundamentally. Again, manifesting each in our particularity. In practice, prajna gives rise to karuna, and karuna gives rise to practice. You know, and that's the traditional Zen perspective, right? First you have insight, and then compassion flows from that. I think that's too simplistic, at least in my experience it is. I've already talked about that a bit. But truly, fundamentally, going deep enough, or deep, 
I don't know what enough is, but you can't have one without the other. They are the means to realizing enlightenment, and they are enlightenment itself. And when I say they are enlightenment itself, implicit in that is manifesting that. And there's no manifesting of compassion. There isn't any compassion. There are times in our practice when we seem to reach our limit. And we try, and we try, and we try, and we just cannot see a way forward, cannot see a way forward. Those are the most helpful times. They're crucial. Usually, they hurt beyond words. So this is a critical time. A sense of who we are and how we live and think is not working for us anymore. So helpful if we turn it. So helpful if we use it instead of be used by it. I have to say there are songs, poems by Leonard Cohen in which he clearly is being used by it in a complaintive way. I won't go into it. It's, as I said, partially it's my button. But, you know, when he talks of a relationship in a song of, How I ever, have I ever loved you? This is not going in a good place <laughs> in terms of that relationship. That's me. But when we reach these times before us, in Zen language, there is an iron mountain. Sometimes it's facing ourselves with a koan, mu. You cannot realize mu from a separate sense of yourself. Can't be done. Often it's what life brings before us, some crisis that we can no longer manage with our accustomed way of being. Our tools are no longer useful. Thank you very much. We have reached the limit of our personal sense of our practice in life, and it's just too small a space. Too small. As we deepen our practice, we begin more directly to face our own karma. That's really what the precepts are about. Our karma, our own suffering. And in facing our own suffering, we face the suffering of those we encounter. We come to realize it's no different. We are not special in our suffering. Again, the first noble truth, implicit. In our desperation now, Perhaps for the first time, we're ready to receive help from the Sisters of Mercy. We're ready to open our arms to what lies beyond our discriminating consciousness, our thoughts. And we got our thoughts down pat, don't we? We're ready 
to turn towards who we are in a fundamental way. Maybe. Entering here, giving up our sense of self. And when I say that, I don't mean in some grandiose way or in some mental illness way or in some way we might imagine. I'm really talking about giving up our conditioning, which imbues us from top to bottom, every one of us. But in beginning to let go of that, then a deep compassion becomes present for us as our being. Because we have suffered, and we see that, and we see it in relation to others. In the reality of our life, we can begin to see clearly. Seeing clearly knows have a sense of our life, what we may need to do. We can begin to see the unity of self and other. And our great warmth and natural kindness that now becomes our self arises from our essential nature. It's already there. Our fundamental nature is whole, does not lack. It's empty of any fixed essence. And yet, you can only live out of that fundamental nature in this relative world of struggle and challenges. And we all face them. When we see this clearly, perhaps just beginning, perhaps more deeply, we begin to open up to ourselves. Our heart opens, and to all beings. Our rigidity and grasping loosens, and we begin to more deeply understand our vows, the precepts that we've taken, and the intent of our life has a purpose that is not bounded by just our very own small sense of ourself. This is a gift that is not offered to us from our knowledge, from what we've learned or a sense of ourself. Where does this gift come from? I don't know. In not knowing, yet having the question, where does this gift come from? I offer incense to Avalokiteshvara and the Buddha before I sit. It is really that simple in that offering. That offering, that offering of the incense is the smallest part of the offering, of the vow. And yet it also is completely embodied in that offering of incense. Compassion is a way of mind being. I'm making up a term. Mind being. Thank you. Wanting all beings to be free of suffering. And actively keeping this before you as we go through our day. 
It is active as our life. The Dalai Lama puts it this way. Compassion is not passive. It is not empathy alone. In a way, empathy is easy, right? We all have empathy towards the animal that's hurt, injured, towards selective others. But it's not empathy alone. It's an empathetic, 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 altruism that actively strives to free others from suffering. Genuine compassion, he says, must have both wisdom and loving kindness. Compassion. That is to say, one must understand the nature of the suffering from which we wish to free others. This is wisdom. And one must experience deep intimacy and empathy with other human beings. This is loving kindness, using a slightly different language. So that's his quote. In order to have compassion for others, we have to have compassion for ourselves. We always start here in practice. Always. Oh, the sisters of mercy, they are not departed, O God. They were waiting for me when I thought that I just can't go on. And they brought me their comfort, and later they brought me the song. Oh, I hope you run into them, you who have been traveling so long. Have you ever been here? I thought that I just can't go on. I have. I suspect that anyone who practices consistently and deeply will run into ourselves in this way. I don't know that for a fact, but it's my experience. And before you, in this place of utter despair, are choices. We see them in life all the time. Self-destruction is one way, and there are many ways to do this. Many avenues along the road of desolation. And yet Daito Roshi used to speak of how Avalokiteshvara appears anytime someone selflessly helps another. And that's great because it destroys any idea you have of some fully developed being always being compassionate. I don't think I've met that being yet. He would give examples of a person breaking up a bar fight. You know, to me, who does not go into bars and has never gone into bars, you know, just being in a bar is already, hmm. But, you know, I lived around the corner in Pittsburgh from the longest street in the country with more bars than any other street in the country. And boy, Sunday morning, it was a mess. Anyway, he spoke of people who jumped off bridges to save another one who had just jumped off the bridge. And in my intellection, I wonder what I would do because I am the most minimally swimmer. My age, I probably wouldn't do it because I know I would die. But when I was younger, that was a question for me. Of course, when it happens, it just happens. You just do it. 
and in countless other examples that you and I have perhaps encountered. I think our desperation is important. And I think when we acknowledge that and open up to it, then the way into ourself becomes visible. And so sometimes because of this, we can let go of what we're so anchored in to open up to the mercy and the loving generosity that we're often blind to. And we're blind because we're so preoccupied with our despair. We're so self-centered in our pain. And in one way, that's natural. But another way, it's a very tight space with very limited possibilities. And most of those possibilities are not helpful because that's what we know. Run away, run away. I'm quoting a film that some of you may know. Thanks, Monty. When we accept this gift, we can see what is before us. What's the gift? Our despair. And we see it with very different eyes. And out of our pain and desperation, can we relinquish a precious sense of demand and subtle self-involvement? A view gets larger. The room gets bigger. And one can hold our pain in a manner that does not weigh so heavily. And that's important. The pain is still there. But we are not anchored in the ocean with it, at the bottom. Well, the sisters of mercy, they are not departed or gone. They were waiting for me when I thought that I just can't go on. Where is compassion? Where is it? He says, waiting for me, waiting for me, when I thought that I just can't go on. It's there. It's been there all along. Do we have the eyes to see it? The heart to feel it? Why is it like this? Is the compassion inside or is it outside? Has it been present all along? If a compassionate heart is a birthright, inherent as our arms and legs and ears, what curtain do we have to pull back for it to blossom as our being? What do we need to do to see what is our birthright? It's very personal. It's very specific to your life and your karma, which excludes nobody. And they brought me their comfort, and later they brought me this song. Oh, I hope you run into them, you who've been traveling so long. How long have we been traveling? In this lifetime? How many lifetimes? I don't know what your belief is. But to me, it's completely apparent that we've been traveling many such lifetimes. Beyond anything I know. And yet, here it is in this life. Last month in a Dharma encounter, someone responding to Hojin Sensei's question said, I must grow up. Now this is a mother, an adult, mature 
by any reasonable standard. A parent speaking, I must grow up. In a way, this is a practice of growing up, of being responsible for yourself, of claiming the happiness and the joy that can come out of your being when we drop our shit, that we so encase ourselves in. Now, it's not as simple as that, of course. So we practice. We have innumerable ways of practicing this. We practice being kind and generous because we have to practice it. We're not kind and generous, so we practice it. We practice it until we don't need to practice it because we're kind and generous. It's the way it is. Isn't it wonderful to have that practice of doing that? Of course, practicing in such a way doesn't mean we won't make mistakes, we won't be confused, we won't hurt others, and we won't hurt ourselves. But it makes all the difference in the world what our intent is and what happens next, what we do next when we harm others. It makes all the difference in the world. We will, it's a given, you and I will harm others. Thank you very much. Do you got that? There will never come a time when we don't. Because there are others. They're not you. In an ordinary sense. They have their own karma. I have my own karma. It's not the same. In its sameness. To be a true person, a teacher of the heart, ourself and other, is to see, in my experience, two sisters, twins, just like Leonard talks about. In my own practice, I call one Avalokiteshvara and the other Muse. They're twins. They're really one person, just slightly differentiated by my mind. I don't know them but they know me. And breathing in our pain and breathing out unconditional love to you, to me, Avalokiteshvara appears. It's actually nothing special. When I awaken at midnight with clarity into my life, or a vision manifesting as a poem or something to say in a Dharma talk that may help. Or an understanding within my zazen. Or way into my bound life. The muse is present. She's really present. She's offering. And I've learned the hard way, even though it's one o'clock in the morning. Get out of bed and take care of what needs to be taken care of. And if you don't, that opportunity is lost. Maybe it'll come again. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But I'm getting out of bed. That's what I know. That's more important than the fact that if I thought about it, I wouldn't feel like getting out of bed. But that thought doesn't even occur to me because I understand the urgency of what I'm being offered, the generosity and the love, which has nothing to do with me. 
Yes, you who must leave everything that you cannot control. It begins with your family, but soon it comes round to your soul. Are we control freaks? Is there anyone here who's not a control freak? That's how we manage our life, right? We shape it towards what we want, avoid what we don't want, and simple enough. We try, we try, we try. We try way past the results that don't seem to come, or if they come, come with the karma that, you know, the law of unintended consequences. You get what you want. <laughs> now you're first in trouble. I've mentioned this before. Everything is under control, says my slowly dying brother-in-law. Is it under control when he falls in the bathroom? As he did again, because I've told this story before, yet again a few days ago, and covers the walls with his blood because he's on blood thinners. Is it under control? Really? How about us? Can I look closely and see how my ideas and desires about controlling what is around me has little to do with the concrete reality of my life? It does begin with my family, with those around me, and does indeed come around to my soul. That's the karma. My soul is the karma. But I may not see this because I'm busy with myself, right? I'm really busy with myself. That's my primary occupation, right? What's your occupation? Me. <laughs> and so there is a karma to this. And when my efforts to make my work, life work the way I wish it, wish it does, when that goes well, I feel fine. Thank you. I get some sense of control. It's working. But in my control, let's look at relationship. In my control of you, because we have that power sometimes, is there respect for you? Deep respect beyond the ordinary understanding of respect. Respect for you as having Buddha nature, as being a Buddha. Am I honoring you in my control? At any point, as a parent or in a close relationship, how that control works is so subtle and profound and really needs to be looked at. You know, I live with three grandchildren and the parents, of course, who have never parented before, so they know nothing about parenting, as all parents do. Learning on the fly, try and control the kids. It doesn't work. Didn't work when I was a kid. And, you know, I studied that. I had two sisters in a difficult household, and one is four foot eight and weighs 250 pounds. One got married when she was 17, I'm out of here. And the other said, fuck you to anything my parents said, overtly and directly. A life's at stake. We're protecting ourselves. 
But at some point, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It becomes destructive. Well, I've been where you're hanging. I think I can see how you're pinned. When you're not feeling holy, your loneliness says you've sinned. I don't know if I can see how you're pinned, but I can see how I've been pinned or how I pin myself. When you're not feeling holy, so that's one side. I feel great. I'm great. You're not saying that directly, but it's implicit. I'm good. It's working. But when you're not feeling that, look at your relationships with everything. Look closely at your relationships. You're alone. Of course, how to understand loneliness is interesting, right? We're going to about to do Sashin. Each one alone. Together. It's not easy to sit Sashin alone. But we can all do it together. I realized early on in my session career, that there's no way that a human being can sit for seven days. It was just, these were seven-day sessions from early to later than our nicer sessions. No way you can sit for a week, but can I sit for this moment? Oh, sure. Our mind. So loneliness has many layers. We can be lonely in a crowd, with sangha, with friends, or just alone. And of course, it can be fine to be alone. And it can be fine not to be alone. And loneliness can be desolate as well. Well, they lay down beside me. I made my confession to them. They touched both my eyes, and I touched the dew on their hand. If your life is a leaf that the seasons tear off and condemn, they will bind you with love that is graceful and green as a stem. I made my confession to them. We do that in Fusatsu. We do it eight, nine, ten times a year. We're making our confession. There's a reason we acknowledge the evil karma we have created through our thoughts and deeds and doing. And confession is is crucial, but it's a start. It's an acknowledgement of our creating evil. I understand creating evil as impeding anyone or even something from truly being fully themselves. There's more to it than that, but that's how my base understanding of it is. Realizing their true nature, appropriate to the circumstances of being their life, stopping people from doing that is evil. So it's not difficult to say the words, all evil karma ever committed by me since of old, on account of my beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance, now I atone for all. We can say that. How can we make that align? What we speak align 
in the grittiness of our life. We take those two things and make them one in actuality, beyond the words. The longer we practice, the more our evil actions become visible. Sorry. The more pain you have. (laughs) That's one side. There's another side, which is much more attractive, of course. The more sensitive we become the more we cannot personally accept the karma we create for each other. Meaning, I do my best to stop hurting you. I still do it. But I do my best to stop hurting you. So yes, I made my confession to you. They touched both my eyes and I touched the dew on their hand. Sorry, this is taking long. Dharmically, we have two eyes, right? The eye of wisdom, which is blind, yet nothing is excluded from it. The eye of compassion, which sees each and everything in its particular, in its just as it is, whole and complete. Yet we see with a single eye, right? I mean, allowing for medical exemptions. We're seeing. There's only seeing. I'm not seeing out of this eye. I'm not that eye. We do that sometimes, right? Changes our perspective. But we see with a single eye. That's clarity. Seeing with a single eye is clarity. They touched both my eyes and I touched the dew on their hem. Please understand that they, and they touched the dew on my hem, is not something that's apart from you. Please understand that there's not something outside you doing that. It is you, yourself. Avalokiteshvara can only touch your eyes when she and you look at each other and there is no other. Do you understand? She can only touch your eyes when you touch her eyes. Do you understand? And yet sometimes all you can be is to be touched. That's all that's possible. And sometimes all you can do is touch. That's all that you can do in that circumstance. This is not within the realm of understanding or intellect. You're not going to figure this out. This is the reality of meeting Avalokiteshvara as yourself. Sometimes it's in the realm of I just can't go on. Sometimes it's in the realm of you who just can't go on. You and I will touch both your eyes. Whatever is needed. It's always there. It's always available. This is our vow. This is our vow that is alive and real. A breath in and a breath out. Touching the dew on their hand. 
your life is a leaf that the seasons tear off and condemn, they will bind you with love that is graceful and green as a stem. It's so ironic, it takes losing our life to have a life. It takes losing our life to be bound with the love of life, to accept the offering that you are now and have always been gifted with. When I left, they were sleeping. I hope you run into them soon. Don't turn out the lights. You can read their address by the moon. The Sisters of Mercy are never far from us. Can you feel your heart beating? Can you see by the light of the moon? It's a full moon. Because you are full. And you won't make me jealous if I hear that they've sweetened your night. We weren't lovers like that. And besides, it would still be all right. I thought about what I wanted to say about that. And I decided I don't want to say anything. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about our ongoing programs and residency opportunities, visit ZMM.org.